Okay, so um, today's episode uh, number six of Conversation Currents with the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. My name is Brett Fenton. Today I'm here with Dr. Vanessa Prodder from the Macquarie University. Um, she is a uh, I guess she'll tell you exactly what her specialties are, but you know, large marine mammals, uh, certainly in urban environments, and I'm super excited to talk to her uh, about some of the, uh, you know, the animals we have around the amazing Sims location, including some of the seals that we just had a quick look at. Vanessa, hello. This is very exciting to be here, especially after the fact that, well, we officially met, and the fact that we also just saw three really large fur seals right in your backyard just there. We did. I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, addicted to the seals, so my day usually starts with a coffee and uh, you know, I understand one of uh, your students at Macquarie University has a citizen science project where you can uh, go to a website and fill in a form and make some observations about what's happening with the seals, so it's part of my, my routine of the day to go and check that out, fill the form in. Um, but yeah, talk, let's talk about um, marine life in the harbour, including seals and dolphins. It is such a great place. Like I'm looking out of your window right now and we are so lucky here in Sydney and your listeners will probably be nodding their head right now. Yeah, we are very lucky. And if you're listening to this and you're not in Sydney Harbour, well, Sydney is such a beautiful spot. The, the trees are co around the coastline. You've got the water lapping on the shore. This year, the weather has been amazing. So therefore we've had really clear waters. Sydney is a great location not only for us to live in, but for some of these big marine animals that I study to be part of maybe all year round or partially around the year, or I should say during those winter months. And I'll start with some of the first animals that I research, and that's the humpback whale. So large, large whales. I'm talking an animal the size of a school bus. Uh, when they have babies, the babies are as long as your car. These are really big animals, and we are lucky to see them off Sydney here every or I should say, generally speaking, from May till as far as November, even December sometimes. These animals do an annual migration from Antarctica where they'll spend the summertime feeding. So they, they really want to put on a lot of weight. So put on as much as weight as they possibly can. It's sort of like an ongoing Christmas lunch and dinner that they have for many, many months. And then when the, the waters start changing, or it's those biological urges, a combination of things probably, environmental factors as well. These animals will then switch directions and then make their way up to Australian waters where we get to see them each year and then they'll travel to those warmer waters in Queensland and on the other side of Australia in, in the Western Australian area like uh, the Kimberley. So we currently right now have been looking at humpback whale movements and one of the things we're noting over many, many years, we have lots of photographic evidence to prove this, is that there are a number of humpback whale females going past Sydney with newborn babies. So this might be telling us something about potentially the fact that calving might be happening a lot further south than we originally thought. So that's just one animal that I work on, but there's many more we'll be chatting about. And, and is you know the fact that we're seeing um, them carve further south a reflection of just a lack of understanding and knowledge on our part, or, or do you think there's an element of of you know warming waters and changing oceanic conditions, which are I guess you know having them um, you know carve you know in I guess non-traditional areas? Well, there could be a combination of a few things. So there are more of us out there. There are people with drones, so they're so accessible now. Social media means that we can document things a lot readily. We can also connect a scientist with citizen scientists, so citizen scientists being non-scientists collecting information for the science world. I would say it's probably a combination of things because when I think about when I first moved to Sydney many years ago, 
Uh, I'd go and whale watching boats as a naturalist and you'd go out and I'm looking back at photos and I still see young calves with their mums. So that's pretty cool. But the, the world is changing and the ocean is also changing. So this is also potentially why we're seeing feeding of a lot of southbound humpback whales on their way home to Antarctica feeding in areas like New South Wales waters. What's going on there? Is there something environmentally happening that we're just not yet aware of? And potentially we're using these animals as indicators of change over time. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of my favourite things I, I sort of told you before, you know, going to, looking at the fur seals, <laughs> um, you know, we have here in the bay, but, you know, I've got some, got some binoculars and I walk a little bit, a little bit uh, out towards Middle Head. There's a really amazing lookout. I can look straight at the heads. There's quite often uh, whale watching boats right at the heads. And just from the shore, you know, with my binoculars, you know, quite often, you know, I'll count sort of, you know, five or ten, you know, decent breaches, yes. which is a really amazing way, <laughs> like, you know, amazing way to spend the lunch hour. Um, you know, and again, you know, we have a deep, uh, you know, I'm deeply privileged to have that opportunity. And that's the thing, acknowledging it. And, and I guess the role of us in the fields that we work in, we have the opportunity to connect others with this great backyard and with the animals that we study. And whether it be through a podcast that your listeners are listening to right now, social media through our science, there's so many different ways that we can connect people. And that's one of the key things that I'm trying to do as well through the citizen science work that we encourage through Wild Sydney Harbour. Yeah, amazing. Um, Oh, it was about two weeks ago and, and I got here, I felt good, you know, I, I come down Chatterway Road, you look out the ocean, it's beautiful. I went and got my coffee and I walked down to see what was happening with the seals and I saw a reasonably large pot of dolphins for the first time. I, I've seen them briefly previously, but about sort of maybe six to eight dolphins, uh, you know, in the bay right outside uh, of Chowder Bay and, you know, is that a common thing? Oh, that's a great sighting. Yeah. Well, it, it could well be a common thing, but we just don't know. And I'll, I'll tell you this. It's funny that we're talking about dolphins because people would think, oh, yeah, there's dolphins in the harbour. Well, yes, there are, but how often are they here and how many are there? We actually don't know. So one of the things that the work that I'm doing collaboratively, and I'll get onto the collaboration in a moment, is we're trying to ask a question. This is through Macquarie University, Wild Sydney Harbour, and... Um, and, and, and very much associated complementary to the first seal research we're doing. So essentially, one of the things that we're trying to work out is how often do we see dolphins here? How often are they here in the harbour? What are they doing here? And are they the same individuals? Now, why, why we ask those questions and why would we want to study the dolphins? Well, it's often when we're doing research, we always think about the biggest and the best thing, the most unachievable thing. But having an understanding of what's in our backyard right now is really important. And the potential presence of the dolphins that you're seeing might be indicative of changes in the harbour. And as far as I know, I personally don't know of anyone who has the full answer to those questions I just posed to your listeners. So we're really trying to get an understanding of the types of, well, we know that they're bottlenose dolphins, but are they the same dolphins? And so one of the exciting things we've started just this year is a dolphin identification catalogue. So in other words, before your listeners go, whoa, what's that? The photo ID catalogue is a way of telling if that's Jessica or John or Fred or Francesca. And so we're using their dorsal fins, so the shape of their dorsal fins, to identify each individual. And in that group that we've seen so far, there's at least 15 dolphins that live in the harbour, or at least spend partially the time or a little bit of their time in the harbour but where do they go external to the harbour and are they here year round and so one of the other cool things i'm doing very proud of is working with the gamay rangers at in gamay or also known as port botany 
And so what we're doing is we're doing fur seal and dolphin and marine mammal, all over marine mammal surveys to understand the dolphins that are there. And one of the questions we're asking are, is, do the dolphins that hang out there, do they come into the harbour as well? So all these exciting things. Well, and, and I guess you know, I've, I've got a million questions out of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I, do we know how far dolphins range? I mean, one of the things that I've been really fascinated with, we've got a project here where we tag kingfish with GPS yeah. trackers, and I'm probably not suggesting we do that with dolphins, but, <laughs> um, you know, some of the indicative or some of the early things we found, like a, a, one of the kingfish we tagged just took off and, and swam straight to New Zealand. Yeah. In a straight line. Yeah, how um, great's that? Yeah, crazy. It's like you know, 2,500 kilometres. Um, you know, do we know how far bottlenose dolphins range, you know, I guess seasonally or in their lifetime? Well, that's a really good question. And the short answer is we don't know with these dolphins that we have here. What we do know with other studies of other dolphins, like, for example, in Port Stephens, that those dolphins are residents. So, in other words, that they're there year-round. So, that is a very a well-known and a well-studied population of dolphins. Some dolphins can have much larger movements, so more coastal ranges. Um, these, these, these being the inshore bottlenose dolphin, they're not usually an offshore species. There is actually another type of bottlenose dolphin that's generally found offshore. So these animals will be very coastal and their movements may be very localised. Maybe they go down to Port Botany or Gamay. Maybe they go all the way to Long Reef. We just don't know. But why are they using the harbour? How often are they here? And what is that telling us about this area? Is it supporting a, a relatively uh, well-known source of food? It maybe just is. Well, and, and so I guess, you know, how common are, you know, sightings in the harbour and how far into the harbour do we see them? But more importantly, if, you know, people do see them and they want to take photos or have the opportunity to take photos, you know, how can they contribute to citizen science and understanding uh, dolphin movements in the harbour? Great question. So Wild Sydney Harbour. There is a website. We're on Instagram as well as X, also known as Twitter. And all you can simply do is take a photo and then you can upload that or share it with us using hashtag wild Sydney Harbour or if you're really keen go to the website have a little bit of a stalk see what we're doing and then you can let us know via that method and and honestly the reason we're doing that is because as scientists and we do this in the whale world as well we can't be out there all the time having fun we'd like to be right but often it's the citizen scientists who are on boats and they're seeing things and while we're behind our screens writing papers, these people are documenting things for us. And so that's why it's a great opportunity for us to connect with you, the listener, to understand year-round presence potentially of these animals. And the more we know, the better we can conserve. So even our understanding of the fur seals here, the fur seals and gamay, the dolphins over there, as well as whales. There are so much amazing things that are coming out of the whale research world right now. The better we have an understanding of their movements, even kingfish, the better we can will be our efforts to protect them. So that's really important. Yeah, amazing. And it's a good segue as well because we got onto now my favourite topic, which is our local uh, population of fur seals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and again, it's something I, you know, we, we, we went down and uh, right after we met and we walked down and had a look uh, in the in the bay and there was a, there was a, there was a few residents down there um, to, to have a good look at. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of see, see up to six here at any one time, sometimes one, sometimes none, sometimes up to six. Um, you know, what do you think is bringing them into the harbour and you know, what does it tell us about the health of the harbour? What does it, you know, and, and what's our understanding of fur seals in the harbour? Great question. So in my personal opinion, I don't ever remember fur seals being there. And I've been here when I first came up here to work with a collaborative project with um, Macquarie University, National Parks, Department of Primary Industries, Taronga Zoo, New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife. We, I would have remembered if there were fur seals here. I'm a, I'm a massive marine mammal nerd. We take photos. We've just taken photos. So 
So their presence is something that's been slowly, slowly building in the harbour. And that's one of the key questions we're trying to ask. How often are they here and are they very much residents? Or are they the bachelor males that are coming up from Montague Island in New South Wales? Or are we seeing the individuals we saw this morning? They're big. They, they, look, like, they look like large adults. Well, they've got a really good body condition on them, and we say that we've taken observations of them. They look very good, and they're, they're very fluffy. They're dry animals. So that shows to me that they're feeding quite well. They look very relaxed. They're very content in the environment. And that is a good sign. That is showing us that potentially the, the background here that we have behind us is the environment there is supporting these animals to ensure that they're able to haul out in one of the busiest cities in the world, and especially the opera house fur seals. And I say seals because there's probably more than one. In fact, I know that there's more than one Benny. And that again is a great opportunity to see an animal that is able to hang out there, or multiple animals, come vivid lights or the New Year's fireworks. Why would an animal choose to still stick around with all those things? And you know, it does. So one of the key things that is happening here for the first time, there's research being undertaken to learn more about the fur seals in the harbour. So we can answer those questions that you asked me at the start. And then we have a PhD student, Vanessa Morris, who is looking at where fur seals are choosing to haul out or hang out on in the harbour. And so we're looking at types of structures, what's, what's the type of environment they're choosing, was it the rocky substrate, was it the steps provided by our activities like our wharfs, do they like those kind of things? And the other thing we're doing is we're surveying if people actually are interested. What, is, what are people's attitudes to these animals in their backyard? Do they enjoy them or do people who have residential houses enjoy having a stinky fur seal on their wharf? Uh, some do and we know some don't as well. So the more information we have, the better that we can make more informed decisions and this information will go directly to New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Services to better assist with the management and the likely growth of these animals in our backyard. You know, like it is amazing. We have them, you know, right in our backyard, and, mm. and um, you know, I've run a couple of tours in the last sort of week, and and uh, you know, people's, you know, the seals have been the highlight, uh, including yes, I had I had uh, thirty two uh, Korean high school students on their very first trip out of Korea, any, anywhere in the world, and they've come to, to Australia, um, who didn't speak any English at all, and so it was a very interesting tour. But but as soon as they saw the seals, that was kind of the almost the finish of the tour because they didn't want to leave. Yeah, it's wow, amazing. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's just, it's nice that they put a smile on people's faces. Yep. It's a, it's a relatively safe spot for us to watch them from. I mean, you watch them from a distance. You don't have to get too close to them. It's just a reminder that you should never approach a fur seal because they can bite and they can run yep. and watch your dogs as well with them. And so it, it's a great opportunity for us right now to be educating the public. We have these marine mammals in our backyard. How great is that? And we also know through the research I'm doing collaboratively with Drone Shark Cat. We see fur seals there feeding on, on a variety of fish. They're feeding with the dolphins. They're interacting with the whales. One of the papers that we put out last year was essentially documenting that activity to show people swimming with sharks, but all these other animals right in our backyard. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the fur seals that are here in our backyard go right around the corner to have a bit of a fish there. Yep, yeah, I, I'm sure you're right. You know, there's days when we don't see them. You know, there's, mm. there's some who are very distinctive, and we don't see them for days or weeks at a time. I'm, I'm actually personally really interested. I think the, the first time I observed them here would have been in May, and um, you know, on one hand, I, you know, I, I'm hoping that they 
they go south and they you know, meet their mates and they head to Montague Island. It's kind of a nice story to go all that way and come back again. But then also, you know, we're kind of like them to hang around and have them have them as a feature here for for you know, the year round. Well, well, if for your listeners that don't know, there's also another secret spot. It's underneath. It's offshore, so you you can't easily get there or see it from land. You need to be on a boat. But it's underneath the Macquarie Lighthouse. There's a haul out location. So I call it a haul out location because at least my understanding is I've not seen any evidence of breeding or potentially could there be breeding happening? We're just not aware of it yet. But just watch this space. Watch this space. Mm. Awesome. Um, so we met today, but, but you know, it was probably a cold winter's night in Melbourne in 2019. And I you know, randomly went to, to TEDx in Melbourne and you spoke. Yes. Uh, very memorable because you, you spoke about Wales Night and the importance of it mm-hmm. and, and the research that was coming out of that. And so now would be a good time to talk about, about Wales Night. Yeah. Oh, well, who doesn't love Wales Night? Essentially, when I, when I was doing this, well, it's not research, and I continue to do it to this day, but explaining it many moons ago was a lot more tricky, and I'll tell you why. Thanks to the COVID pandemic, the opportunity to have an analogy was just, it didn't exist back then, so I'd compare whales not to picking your nose and then taking a sample of the boogers on your nose. But essentially, collecting whale snot is like collecting a PCR sample. And immediately, your listeners will go, oh, I get that. But there wasn't back then. So the reason we collect whale snot, well, what is it first? It's essentially humpback whales, they breathe air like you and I. And when they breathe, that breath is a whole heap of bacteria we can collect from their lungs. So I'm talking about hormones, lung microbiome, epithelial cells for the doctors listening, a huge DNA, huge variety of things. And one of the tools that we were, we were trying to ask a few questions initially through my PhD, can we use new tools like drones, which if we think back to 2015, drones were not a big thing. The cheapest drone I could source was $10,000. That's Australian money. So, and for a PhD student, that's a lot of money and they weren't waterproof. So that's why I had to think outside the box, but more in that in a moment. And then uh, can we, could we get good samples from a whale through their breath and so we were able to address all those questions and yes we were able to use drones to reliably collect whale snot as an assessment of whale health so by collecting those samples from the breath we're able to understand the internal health of a whale to provide a snapshot of their health to then use that with coupled other information such as photogrammetry to look at body condition and then pair that with the internal health of the animals and then compare the whale snot of our whales with other whales around the world and then sick individuals what does this tell us what is the core microbiome or the the representative microbiome of a healthy whale versus that of a sick whale so there was a variety of things that we did and by using drones we're able to take away the use of a boat or at least 200 meters plus we could be sampling from and then collect our sample and come back to our boat with the drone and this is all this all means that we do need to be close to a whale at all which is a great way of doing it and i guess you know so i'm sure there was a lot of key findings we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in one moment but i guess you know technology has you know drones have commercialized over the last sort of you know five to seven years and oh yes you know they're they're you know you get they're, they're cheaper you get ones that are you know completely waterproof i know people use them for fishing now all yes. kinds of stuff um you know how is that changing technology are we still are we still using it as, as a technique to to assess you know wild population health yes it is very the technology has gotten so much better so the first generation of our drones the tech is just it's good but it's so much better than the next drones which is a good thing so things can be a lot more efficient 
the only limiting factor for drones that still exists in my opinion is the battery time if we can increase longevity of battery that means we can spend longer time in the air collecting samples and not having to recharge batteries but with all that there's always this compromise weight time efficiency uh, and it's just one of those things that will likely get a lot better just like we've got electric cars they're really good right now but the next generation of electric cars will make us go allow us to go further for a lot longer and that's the, what's always try we're always in the science world trying to get that bit better so with the use of drones it can only get better from here amazing what and what you know what have been some of the key findings in that research i mean how what is the health of our, of our, of our whale populations well that's a really good question it was only able we're only able to sample around well not as there's 40,000 plus humpback whales we only sampled a very small fraction of those individuals but what we were able to find, rather, is that our samples were very representative of other populations from other parts of the world. So I'd say what we were sampling is a, we're providing a baseline information level of the types of bacteria in their lungs, and we found similarities with other whales, not populations, so that's good. We were also able to find viruses via this method, which is really amazing because viruses need a host. And so a lot of these viruses were new ones that we found through those whales, which is really cool. Um, we were also able to apply this technology to assessing dolphin snot, but that was a little bit more tricky. So there was there was a few world firsts, which was great. The virus component, the dolphin snot collection, which was a world first. But it's, in essence, our research continues. So we continue to now ask more questions because our opportunity to sample has gotten a lot better. We've got bigger petri dishes. Our drones are a lot faster and, and also our drone piloting through Heligai Scientific, which is Alastair Smith. If you're listening, Alistair, there's so many great things that we're doing collaborative-wise that people asking more questions about our work. Can you now do this with the drone? Or, or uh, now that we've got viruses from whales, how more, how how much more can we sample from the humpback whales? Can we now look at other species? So watch this space. Yeah, look, I mean, it's you know, just the the, I, the combination of science and technology, mm. um, you know, is fascinating. I, I, I went to the um, National Geographic uh, photography or photographer or nature photography exhibition this year and some of the drone photography certainly of things like polar bears and understanding uh, you know polar bear movements now into um, areas where have been de-iced effectively mm. um, and it, it can only be done by drones yeah. and and you know the learnings that are coming out of that work you know it's quite profound and you know, and a bit terrifying too. It's, you know, it's certainly showing you know the impacts of climate change you know in Arctic regions. Mm. Um, but but you know I I'm really excited about you know the future of what we can do with this kind of you know access, remote access type work that we yeah. didn't have even ten years ago. And it's a lot safer as well. It's a lot safer flying a drone than putting people in a helicopter, in my opinion. Yep. So and also the thing is, we, we, with our whale research, we. We still don't know if whales know that drones there or they don't know the drones are there at all. We saw no behavioural response. We continue to see no behavioural response for that. But just as a friendly reminder, there are rules in place for flying drones over whales. So do keep your 100 metres, although our research allowed us to get within a few metres of a humpback whale. But all of that was done through scientific licensing as well. Good, good advice. Um, oh my God, I could do this all day. It's an amazing <laughs> conversation. Um, but we do have to wrap it up, and, and I guess you know, my final question would be: is um, well, actually, I'm going to have two two final questions. One one is is you know we've just talked about climate change and and you know the impacts of marine environments you know in general, but you know we talk a lot about hope in marine environments, and and you know it's a UN ocean or decade of the ocean up until 2030. 
um, things are happening really, really rapidly right now, and hope's probably not enough. I mean, what what do you see, you know, at the coalface of, of research? You know, what's you know what are things that are alarming you, and what are also some of the things that you know you think we can do right here, right now, to to change the course we're on? Well, I'd like to look at this in terms of what is nature telling us that we should be more aware of, and and just think about that. And the reason I say that is because we're seeing behaviours in humpback whales, for example, on the east coast that may have been occurring before and we've just never documented because they were hunted so severely or maybe that the changes that we're seeing like the mass feeding supergroup events that we've documented for the first time off new south wales south coast which which only started in 2020 mind you this is where 20 plus humpback whales are feeding in one area that's five school buses within each other's in in each other's proximity feeding on the same thing it's a it's like whale soup I can't explain how amazing it is to see. Why is that happening now? And then the use of bubble net feeding, there must be so much food there that these individuals are blowing bubbles with their blowholes and they're doing that individually then cooperatively. These behaviours have never been documented in Australian waters. Why now? Why are we seeing Brutus whales feeding on these areas? We don't know much about these whales. So why is all this happening now? So my answer to this question is... Maybe we can use this as an opportunity to wake up and really make a chance to to understand the future for these animals by learning from their behaviours now. Asking questions as to why are we seeing this and what does this mean for our future? What is happening in our backyard that we can't yet see? And so research that we can do now can help best prepare us for the future. And that's important. I completely agree, Samantha. That's a great answer to the question. Thank you. Um, Vanessa, one last one is, you know, if, put the research to the side, put, put all the amazing science to the side. You know, what's one thing that you know, you're listening to, watching, um, immersing yourself in that's, you know, potentially changing your real world or, or just, you know, giving you a world view? Oh, look, that's a really great question. I suppose every time I hop online, there's always a random thing here and there. But I would say that a reality TV at the moment. Okay. This is a really, really far-fetched answer, but reality TV at the moment is the thing that's really getting me to think how people take on certain challenges. What what are they... For example, I can think of... There's two examples. And the other day, I was forced to watch the Kardashians with my sister, and I would never usually watch them, but it was really interesting. How do these people manage their time, and how do they see the world? And I wonder what they would do if they worked out that their money could be put towards marine research. Do they know that? And so that got me thinking. (laughs) And then the traitors, I find that interesting as well. How do people go around thinking about how they can approach different projects or tasks in a clever way of putting themselves forward. I find all of this quite bizarre and then I kind of go, oh my gosh, I've forgotten about everything in my world. I want to go back to my world sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, I think it is the point of reality TV and, and I, you know, it is a rabbit hole. You can go deep into it. I, I limit myself, you know, Survivor is, yeah, see? Uh, is my you know, annual annual thing to have a, I guess, you know, put the magnifying glass up to human behaviour. Oh gosh, I've been and- asked on Survivor multiple times <laughs> and I don't, I don't think I'll ever do it. But yes, it seems intense. Well, Watch your space. We may end up seeing you on Survivor. Who knows? I, although I do like the tropical locations. They're quite good. Um, Dr. Vanessa Parada, it has been amazing. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.